Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Acris Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media. Welcome to this uh, Full and Frank podcast on behalf of Acris Exchange. I'm Michael Wilson, and I'm joined by my friend and also fellow commentator David Buick. And we're joined, we're joined by a man who, king of retail actually for so many years in this country, Justin King. Um, welcome to our podcast. Now, you you, you went. What, what what took you in, into into? I know it's it's groceries and all that, but let's talk retail. What took you into that sort of slice of life? to start with when you were at school? What was it that, that fascinated you about it? Well, uh, hello both. Uh, lovely to be talking to you. Um, uh, well, it didn't, uh, actually. I didn't start out in <coughs> retail, far from it. Um, closest I came to retail in my early life was I was a paper boy. In fact, uh, the day I left Sainsbury's, the headline on, and the uh, business page in the Birmingham Evening Mail was former male paper boy retires. Um, so that was my uh, claim to fame. Um, uh, in fact, when I used to do the long service awards at Sainsbury's, the story I always used to tell was the fact I did, in fact, apply for a what you would perhaps have called a self, uh, shelf stacking job at Sainsbury's when I was 16 and got turned down. Uh, so uh, when they um, ultimately recruited me as chief exec, it cost them a little bit more than it would have done had they recruited me at 16. So I um, uh, went to university to a business degree and uh, ended up in fast moving consumer goods initially with Mars. Uh, and uh, after 10 years or so in that career, I feel like crossed the table um, uh, into retail. So I didn't start in retail till my 30s. OK, just 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 on, on the shelf stacking, I think legend has it that you stacked the shelves at my local Sainsbury's, which is in Hatch Warren in Hampshire near Basingstoke. Is that right? Well, not as a full time career, but on occasion. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, that's that's true. I mean, one of the things I tried to do um, when I was at Sainsbury's was every Friday and I, I managed this probably three out of four, I guess, uh, work in stores, travel around stores, visit stores and particularly at busy times like Easter and Christmas, actually uh, roll my sleeves up and, and work in, in stores. If you see the job, if you like, through the eyes of a colleague on the shop floor or a customer on the shop floor, I, I think you you do a better job if you're a chief exec. So that was something that, that I yeah. did. In fact, uh, the story is told, it's true, actually, on my uh, very first day uh, at Sainsbury's, as you might imagine, in what they then called the head office in Holborn in London, there was a bit of a stand by your beds uh, process going on, waiting for me to arrive. And about half past nine, I got a phone call from the HR director inquiring as to whether I'd forgotten that I was supposed to be starting because I hadn't turned up. I had, in fact, turned up. I'd uh, rocked up at seven o'clock at what was then um, Sainsbury's number one shop in Stanway. And um, was working in store with the store manager and uh, that was intended to send a message uh, which is that it was shops where we uh, serve customers and made money and, and not the head office environment and indeed mm. that was part of what was going wrong at, at Sainsbury's they thought the head office as they called it was the center of uh, the universe and it was not. Did, did, you, just, um, did, did you actually learn these lessons of, of, of being on the shop floor when you were working at what you describe as fast moving consumer things at Hagen Dust and the rest of it. I mean, where, where, did, where did you actually realise that that was the way to go forward? Well, I, I mean, it, it, to some extent, it was my uh, life journey. You know, I joked earlier about starting out as a paper boy, but I did. And um, I worked my way through uh, school and, and university, paid uh, for myself. Uh, so I have really been working since I was 12, uh, 12 years old. 
So I've done a lot of coal-phase jobs. So I kind of developed my own view, if you like, that seeing the business at the sharp end was key to understanding it uh, from uh, the top. But then I was very fortunate to join an organization in Mars. That's where I joined straight after university, who, whose philosophy was that you should learn from the ground up. Um, not uh, They didn't expect you to spend years and years um, uh, walking the tiles, as it were, but they did expect you to see the sharp end of business. So my first six months was in uh, production. I ran the Galaxy production line for my sins, ate far too much Galaxy. Um, and then my second six months was working as a, a territory salesman, um, walking the pavements in uh, in North London. Uh, and so, you know, that, that was a philosophy in Mars about learning that way. So I took that really with me through the rest of my working life. Any of those during your stay at Harvard Dyson, particularly Mars, Justin, did anybody as a manager impress you? I mean, one of the things that's come across of Michael and I that we've always respected you so much is we think you're a brilliant communicator. Well, I, I like to think uh, some of it's innate, if you like, that I have a, a I'm sure it talent is. for it. Um, but I think that, you know, I worked in organisations where if you couldn't communicate and, and communication isn't just about sort of standing on your feet and being able to do a presentation. It's about being able to engage people one on one, motivate them. Uh, and and lead them you know that's all they're all dimensions of communication and again you know if I go to my early working experience in in Mars a lot of, there was a lot of formal training around that I can remember going on a presentation uh, skills uh, course I wasn't somebody who was naturally comfortable in front of a crowd if you like you know if you went back to my school days I never took part in school plays or any of that kind of thing you know I wasn't sort of comfortable on my feet in front of a crowd. I think that's something I've learned and developed uh, over over time. So it's a combination, I think, of a, a bit of talent and a lot of training and obviously the opportunity to refine those skills over the the, the, the long term. Your time, at, before we talk a little bit about Sainsbury's, your time at Asda, I mean, with Archie Norman, presumably, and then at Marks and Spencer's, where presumably you worked with Sir Richard Greenbury under his stewardship and or Luke van der Velde or both. Um, you must have learned some really interesting business uh, tools that enabled you to make that, how can I put it, springboard into that very senior position at uh, Sainsbury's. Yeah, you know, I like to think of myself as a bit of a sponge. You know, I soak up uh, from my environment, from the people I'm working with, the people I'm working for. And I'm often asked, have I ever had a mentor? And I, I don't think I have, really. But uh, there are loads of people that I uh, work with and for who I can say absolutely that I've uh, learned from. You asked me earlier about communication. One of the best public communicators I've ever seen is Alan Layton. And I worked for him at um, uh, at Asda and, and then again, uh, 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 and prior to that, I should say, at, at Mars. So, um, you know, you learn from those around you. I sometimes say that I've kind of never had an original idea of my own. They're only ideas that I've stolen from uh, other people. And there is some truth in that, I think, in terms of the skills that you develop. If you see great people doing things well, uh, you can only learn from it. I have to say that at the beginning of the pandemic, when, when the supermarket shelves were threatening to be empty and all the rest of it, I have to say that supermarket bosses really got on with it. Um, you know, if, if you hadn't known there was a pandemic, you almost wouldn't have known that there was, a, there, there was going to be a shortage of things. T tell me a little about those kind of qualities that you actually need to do that sort of thing, because, you know, the government was dithering one way or the other. Businesses like supermarkets just got on with it, didn't they? 
Yeah. Um, well, you know, first and foremost, the profit motive is an amazing thing. You know, I'm a big fan <laughs> of profit motive. And uh, there was a great opportunity for those businesses um, uh, to make money. But at, at its heart, because I don't believe that the profit motive is the objective of the organisation, it's the outcome uh, of whatever its objective is. And serving customers well, some form of words to that effect, should be the heart of any retail organisation. Um, there was that sort of cliche line about them having become, what was it, the fifth emergency service, if, if you like. But uh, of course, um, getting your weekly food grocery needs for your family is right up there, you know, after uh, health and education, I guess, as a priority for pretty much every family in the country. I, I think the other thing I, I should say is that, you know, supermarkets, grocers, the big four, as they're so-called, are, are much maligned. There is at times it's felt a little bit like, you know, nobody loves us, but do we really care? They really are fantastic businesses. The grocery industry in the UK is incredibly competitive, and that leads to great outcomes for consumers, because that's what competition uh, delivers. And, you know, I, I went through, I think, three competition commission investigations in my time as a senior uh, person in the supermarket sector which always felt a bit of a head scratch because I'd worked in the industry and it felt pretty competitive to me. But I can tell you, as I travelled the world, the rest of the world looked on in complete bemusement at the idea that um, supermarkets in the UK weren't, you know, most revered because around the world they were viewed as some of, if not the most efficient, effective, customer-facing organisations, retailers that existed anywhere in the world. I don't think I'd be overstating the case to say that, you know, at the height of his pomp, Lord John Sainsbury, when he was leading uh, Sainsbury's and Sainsbury's, therefore, was the best retailer in the world. Um, and so I think what you saw in the pandemic was that kind of truth outed. These are fantastic businesses, well run, on the whole, well led, um, and most importantly, with tens and tens, hundreds of thousands, actually, of committed loyal employees and they really stepped up in the pandemic they really did you brought the Sainsbury family into it did they did they did they want to get involved when you when you were running it I know that David wants to know the answer to that question as well it fascinates us um, not at all really um you know by the time I joined um there hadn't been a, a family member in the business for about five years uh, uh, David Sainsbury uh the other Lord Sainsbury um uh, was the last family chief exec and, and uh, chairman of the business. Um, he'd taken over from his cousin, John. Um, they still owned around a third of the company. As part of my recruitment process, I did have to meet with representatives of the family. I, I think I was sort of anointed uh, by them, or at least they didn't blackball me, let's put it that way. <laughs> and we used to meet with them regular shareholders. They were very significant shareholders throughout uh, my time. Uh, but they got no more of a voice uh, than you know any other big shareholder uh, did. Uh, the one person I suppose who you could argue was slightly different was uh, Lord John. He was life uh, president. Um, he would occasionally remind me and others that he was life president, but his office was separate. It was a, a family office. I used to visit stores every six months or so with him. Colleagues were generally delighted uh, to see him because he was iconic in the business. But they really uh, played no part um, in the running of the business from about the year 2000. Walmart and Target, who are, of course, enormous operations, do they uh, or have they contributed into the culture of the way we run supermarkets in this country or is the culture totally different? Um, well, look, Walmart 
um, owned ASDA for, well, in the end, 20 uh, yeah. years, uh, having bought it in 2000 and sold in 2020. Um, I think if you went back and read uh, the narrative around their purchase of ASDA in the year 2000, I was at ASDA at that time. I worked for Walmart for uh, a year or so. Um, you know, they clearly um, caused people to sharpen their pencils. There was an expectation uh, the price would become a bigger part of the competitive uh, dynamic as a result of uh, Walmart and, and the power, if you like, that they would bring to bear. Uh, some, I think, would say that, you know, Walmart were eventually seen off. Uh, I think I'd put it slightly differently. I think in the end, Walmart took the view that the capital they had tied up in the UK could be better uh, invested elsewhere. That tells you again, I think, something about the competitiveness of the UK market. But there's no doubt that um, part of the strength of UK grocers today is that they were forced to really sharpen their pencils and compete hard uh, when Walmart bought uh, Asda. And of course, many of the people in Asda at the time, myself included, took the opportunity to learn from Walmart. I, I worked for them for Fiesta every year. I traveled in the States. I looked at their business, saw what they did. And so all of that has an impact too. You know, you take that with you um, in your journey uh, post working for that business. And I left initially to go to Marks and Spencers and then, uh, as we've mentioned, Sainsbury's. Can I ask you about, we, we, you, you talked a bit about Walmart and so on. Let's talk about Lidl and Aldi um, and, and, and what they what they bring to the party and how they've, they've altered, altered the landscape. Do you think that their own brand philosophy, that's therefore cheaper, and I'm sure there's lots of other things as well that you know much more about than I, how, how have they affected things? Have they just simply brought prices down or have they offered a real choice? Well, they offered a real choice. I, I think what I would say is that they um, are much longer in this market than people recognise. I think Aldi opened their first shop something like 35 years uh, ago. And, and one could argue that even the current market share that the two main discounters, Lidl and Aldi, enjoy is not exceptional in historical terms. Quicksave, if you like, the original limited line yeah. food discounter in the UK, um, had 12% uh, or thereabouts market share um, when I started out my career in the mid-1980s. Uh, I, I remember, in fact, the Quicksave National Account Manager had a greater financial responsibility than the Tesco Account Manager had in those days. So um, they're not new news. I, I think what is new about them is that, um, and you can see this sort of point of pivot uh, about 10 years ago now, when first Aldi and, and later Little recognised that if you only targeted consumers of limited means. That was a very uh, significant constraint on uh, the, the number of stores you could open and the turnover that you could enjoy. So they, they changed their store opening strategy. They moved towards what I sometimes called a roundabout strategy. They found a great supermarket and opened a little rally on the roundabout from which that supermarket was accessed. So it was quite parasitic, if you like, of the football. Um, <laughs> But they've also opened shops which, you know, if you were an Aldi customer in Germany and you walked into a little in this country, you wouldn't recognise it. You would see probably twice the range. The store is in a much better location, as I've mentioned, uh, a big car park, uh, customer service levels that you would not experience in a, a, an Aldi uh, in Germany uh, and fresh food and, and so on. So they're, they've built a business that is not perhaps as hard nosed, limited line discount as um, some would believe. And I've always been at the bearish end of um, how much market share uh, they would accrete. I can remember 10 years ago, around 2010, the centre of gravity of most uh, analysts 
was that discounters would probably have 25% market share by 2020. Uh, they today enjoy 12 or 13% between the two of them. So very significant because that's grown from um, a small number of percentage points for those two uh, 10 years ago, but nowhere near as significant uh, as many predicted. And the main reason for that, of course, is back to this competitive marketplace. The supermarkets have rolled up their sleeves and stood toe to toe. So uh, to answer the other part of your question, are prices cheaper today on the whole in the UK as a result of discounters? Yeah, they are, for sure. If, um, so I really want to move on about your career as well, but just to, on the Aldi little thing, I mean, in Germany, they are enormous operations, aren't they? I think they've got about 9,000 outlets each. Yeah. And, and, you know, people think that there's the possibility that if they really wanted to flex their muscles, I mean, we've no idea unless you come through the balance sheet, but how much money they've lost during the course of the last 10 years, I would imagine it's a fair amount. And they're probably on a pretty even keel now. They've done very well. Um, I just, if you could just make a comment on that. And then I, I want to refer to the fact of your 10-year tenure um, at Sainsbury's, where I think I'm right in saying for every quarter, there was some sort of increase in sales, which is fantastic, for which very well done. Thank you. Then I'm going to ask you that, do you subscribe to the view that a lot of people um, that I've spoken to that as a chief executive of a very big operation, 10 years is enough and it's time to move on. Uh, gosh, you, I think you've asked me about five questions there. Um, I have, sorry. Um, let, well, let me start at, at the end. I, I, I always in my mind uh, had a kind of two-term presidency view of what I thought my time should be. I was never quite sure whether a term was four or five years, but I always thought about eight to 10 years would probably be uh, about right. And, and that was born of a view, which is that I would observe that whether in political systems or in business systems, leaders very rarely do their best work beyond the first couple of terms uh, in, in the job. I, I once called it that I subscribed into the Gary Lineker School of Retirement. You know, Gary Lineker um, could, of course, have played another five years in football, probably broken a few extra records, um, and made a bunch more money, but age 30 or thereabouts, uh, decided to move on and has carved out a hugely successful uh, career for himself beyond it. And I always rather liked that idea. So I, I wouldn't comment on any individuals and whether they overstayed their no. welcome, but I do think you generally don't do your best work when you're 12, 13, 14 years into a job. And I, I'm a bit of a butterfly and I could feel the itchiness of wanting to move on to do other things. Um, the closer I got to the the, the, in the end, the target I set myself, which was was 10 years. And as you said, throughout that time, we, we uh, achieved light for light sales growth in my fourth quarter and then for the rest of my uh, tenure. And, and after a year of very significant financial stress, I, depending on which journalist you agree with, um, I issued four or five profit warnings in my first year, nine consecutive years of profit uh, growth. No individual year was exceptional. But uh, I think you do these things for the long and longer term. And so for me to be able to do that consistently over 10 years was was what I was uh, most uh, proud of. Um, the, the other bit of the question you asked about uh, discounters, um, you know, to some extent, you can back solve um, what they may or may not achieve from the yeah. number of stores that they've announced they're going to open. It is a store opening game uh, that still leaves me believing that, you know, mid to high uh, teens percentage market share is the kind of likely outcome if you take, a, say, a 2030 view. 
Um, uh, there is a much longer answer to the question, but to nudge back to what I said earlier, the reality is, is that the structure of their P&L in the UK is very different from that in many other markets in which they operate. And, and therefore, the price advantage that they're able to offer much reduced. And that impacts on their ability to nick market share because many, many, many consumers, the vast majority in the UK, focus on value for money as a much more complex equation than simply grams per penny. You know, grams per penny is one aspect of value for money, but quality, service, availability, uh, a car park that feels safe, colleagues that are engaged that want to talk to you, the ethics of the retail, all of these things are other dimensions of how people arrive at their own view, what represents value for money. And, and that's what makes the UK market so complex, competitive and interesting. On the, quickly touching on the uh, Marks and Spencer situation, you must be absolutely delighted what Steve Rowe and Archie Norman and you guys have achieved in the course of the last six months. Um, well, I should say the last year, the share price has rocketed. Can it be sustained? I mean, the competition, and can I just include that? I know I'm going to be accused of asking so many questions at the same time, but can I include of asking what you think, Justin, the future of the high street is? because it is a very worrying area. I mean, 180,000 jobs, I think, were lost last year. Uh, the chances of, uh, I mean, I believe that we all have a moral obligation to support our own high streets, but this isn't clearly happening with Amazon and various other things. And what has the government been very short of and what would you like to see and who do you think will survive roughly? Gosh, <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna accuse you of asking a lot of questions in one again. I know, sorry. So, look, I mean, Marks and Spencer's, in a way, was the only part of my career that I ever felt was slightly unfinished business. I was there for three years. Uh, you mentioned earlier, actually, it was Luke van der Velde that, uh, that I worked yeah. for there. Um, and uh, the opportunity to be chief executive of Sainsbury's came along. Of course, I, I took that. Um, uh, I ran the food business at Marks and Spencer's for, for, for three years. Um, and Simply Foods was uh, created on my watch, actually, back in 2001 which is a core platform of M&S's success today. So I'm very proud of, of that. So when Archie offered me the opportunity to rejoin the board, it felt like, um, how can I put it, it's a very worthwhile work, something that needed doing. And that goes to uh, your question about the high street. I, I sometimes call it the so-called high street because um, it, it, it's really what we're talking about here is bricks and mortar retail. That you know, might be town centres, it might be retail parks, it might be the small uh, row of shops that you think of as your high street or your corner shop, but it's bricks and mortar retail um, more generally. I, I do think M&S matters. I think there are many, many towns in this country that absent uh, an M&S uh, would really struggle. M&S, uh, 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 well, approaching a couple of years ago now, uh, closed uh, their store in Barrow in Finesse. And um, that led to a lot of commentary along the lines of, you know, what's happened to M&S that it can't operate in Barrow in Finesse. I think the way to think about that question actually is almost the opposite way around. What's happened in Barrow in Finesse that even M&S uh, can't make uh, make sense uh, of it? Um, and, and that goes to your question about the role that government might uh, play. I, I am a free marketeer. I believe in free and fair competition. I believe that always leads to the best outcome for consumers. But at the moment, the government through the tax system and through regulation um, is in effect backing the internet 
against bricks and mortar. It's an mm. unfair, uneven playing field, and it needs to address that. And it, it really is doing it in three, uh, uh, three areas, and it's property, people, and profit, and I think pretty much in that order. Um, our log legacy property taxes, business rates, are, were a proxy when they were introduced hundreds of years ago. Uh, property was a good proxy for business activity. It no longer is. It clearly makes no sense that to operate a shop, you have to pay a massive contribution through business rates to local services that the internet retailer, let's say Amazon, who nicks the sale from you, uses, but doesn't pay for. Because the driver that's driving their white van was educated in schools that those business rates have paid for. The white van is driving on roads that if the potholes have been repaired, they've been repaired by the business rates that the retailer paid for. <laughs> And those brown cardboard boxes are collected by dustmen or taken to tips that are paid for by business rates, too. So the business rate system is unfair and needs structural reform. My own <laughs> view is you should do away with it and have local VAT. That would be my preferred route. I think that's politically very difficult. The one that appears to have the most legs at the moment is some kind of delivery uh, tax. The second aspect is people pretend self-employment. Most retailers employ em, their employees really well. You know, working a lifetime for Sainsbury's, um, there are over 5,000 people in Sainsbury's who have worked for Sainsbury's more than 25 years. You know, I don't subscribe to this idea that young people today are going to work for 20 companies. Many will still find the opportunity to fulfill their career aspirations working for one company called Sainsbury's or Tesco, or maybe these days Amazon too. Um, uh, but in the end, pretend self-employment, you know, those people driving white vans are self-employed that in any meaningful sense, they are not. And uh, in the end, the tax system is being disintermediated. Um, I've seen some estimates that put what I would call pretend self-employment as having, uh, if you like, disintermediated something of the order of 30 billion from the exchequer. Well, you know, the chancellor needs to find pots of money and that's a pot of money they're going to need Define. And it's bad for those people that they do not have pension schemes, that they do not in many instances still have proper, proper holiday and health care and all of those things. So uh, I subscribe to the view that we need to sort out that employment. And then finally, it's the one that tends to ca carry most of the headlines, which is profit tax. Um, you know, when someone jumps in an Uber, I think they know they're not doing business in Amsterdam, really, but they are. And we have to do something about that, too. And there are some steps to address that. But I think it's important not to emphasize that third one, because it's really property and people taxes, which will level the playing field. And then we'll see. I personally am not bearish about the so-called high street. I think omni-channel retailing, where bricks and mortar shops will be integral to the idea, is the future. And I think if you look at most pure internet retailers, you know, Amazon bought Whole Foods. I would suggest they bought Whole Foods because they think real shops are going to form part of their future. And of course, probably the biggest news in grocery retail, rightly or wrongly, in the last couple of years has been the fact Amazon are opening shops. They, they, they yeah. talk about them being, um, you know, people free, you know, contactless. They're, they're, they're not really. They clearly are very clever in the technology they use, but they're physical shops. And omni-channel retail has at its heart a very simple idea, I think, 
single view of customer and single view of product. And what that means is, as a customer, whether you choose to shop online, but pick up in store, click and collect, shop in store and have it delivered to your home, shop in store and take it home yourself, shop purely online and have it delivered to your home or to another address, whichever way you choose to do it, the retailer serves you the way you wish to be served. That's what omni-channel retailers. And bricks and mortar retailers are at least as well positioned as pure play online retailers to deliver against that aspiration. That's why I'm not bearish. That's, that's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. We, time is unfortunately coming towards an end, but I'd like to sort of end uh, my side of the, of, uh, the questions, if I may, by just saying there was a rumour, and it was probably not founded, but there was thought that you might, it, having left Saints, be joining F1. And whether Bernie Eccleston was trying to entice you over, was that a figment of my imagination and the press's imagination, or was there a little bit of thought behind it? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I understand uh, why it captured people's imagination. I was in a lot of um, Formula One paddocks at around that time. I became interim chairman <laughs> of um, uh, Marussia, became yeah. man of Formula One. My son was racing. He was contracted uh, to drive for, for Manor. That's why I stepped in. You know, I got involved in the sport because it was my son's uh, chosen life journey. And I figured I should understand the sport so I could help him as best I can. Um, I stepped in uh, alongside uh, Stephen Fitzpatrick of uh, OVO. Um, uh, we put the business through a CVA and brought it back to life. Um, ultimately, we failed. Um, we had prize money for two years to live off. Um, but being the 11th team on the grid, which is what we were, is not a great place to be because the prize money stops at 10. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there was one race well. in particular, which was... Uh, Brazil, when um, we, at that time we were still 10th in the championship, but then uh, uh, Caterham picked up a couple of points, leapfrogged us, and that was a kind of $100 million bad news day. <laughs> uh, so um, we weren't successful, but that's where the rumours were, were, were sparked. My, but my involvement was um, brought about through supporting my son. It wasn't ever something I imagined I would be doing the next bit of my life journey. You've clarified the situation perfectly. Michael, what would you like to say? I would like to say that um, we now face an economy, it seems to me, which everybody knows about, energy, energy crisis, you know, household costs rising and all the rest of it, people with less money, wages not catching up with inflation, all that kind of thing. You know about people's spending habits. What would your advice be to a major customer facing business like the one you've known are for, for all these years looking at the economy right now ride it out hope for the best or is it going to be a tough year oh it's it's going to be a tough year for consumers uh, i i think of that there is no doubt i i i think that the level of um, inflation and its longevity will be both greater and longer than appears to be the central case that say politicians and the, the bank in england are currently considering it, it feels very significant and persistent. Uh, the most recent grocery uh, data showed, uh, I think, three and a half percent inflation. Um, most uh, consumers, there's probably a generation of consumers, maybe two, actually, because, you know, we're three old blokes uh, shooting the breeze. But our children and if we have them, grandchildren have never experienced the level of inflation we're going to see over the next 12 months or so in, in, in their, their grown up lives. Uh, least. Um, in, in simple terms, it usually takes two or three quarters of 
retail price inflation being greater than wage uh, inflation, for it start to impact on consumer uh, behavior. Um, and of course, we are seeing wage inflation. Indeed, wage inflation is one significant component of the overall inflation that we're seeing. And as we know, those of us that were around in the 1970s, you can have very big pay increases, but if inflation's going up faster, it doesn't feel like no. they're getting any better off. Um, it is an illusion. And I feel we're going into that sort of period. But it's worth remembering that, you know, people um, like David and I talk about the financial crash in 2007-8. For consumers, it didn't arrive until 2010. And um, 2010, the first quarter of 2010, was really where you saw the shock of the previous year, 2009, where people's mortgages started going up because interest rates started to um, uh, settle and, and then uh, cost of borrowing money if you were a householder went up. Um, and they hadn't had a pay increase for a couple of years, a little bit of inflation crept through. So it was 2010. And that's when you saw the, quite a big shift away from the weekly grocery shop to top up shopping, much discussed over the last 10 years. Um, I think 2022 is going to be, if you like, this financial shocks 2010. The consumers may even in the next quarter, but they certainly will by the middle of the year, feel very unsure about what their household budget is going to look and feel like. Um, they don't feel particularly vulnerable in their jobs at the moment. You know, one of the successes, if you can call that up, of, of the management of COVID and furlough has been we haven't had massive job insecurity. That's uh, quite surprising, I think, uh, not what I would have bet on two years ago. So one has to give credit there to the government to the extent that their policies have uh, achieved that. Um, but they are going to feel like the budget squeezed. Nobody could be alive and breathing and not think they're going to be paying more for energy in the next uh, six months. And after food, that's pretty much the first thing people worry about in the, the household budget. And food, as I said earlier, is inflating. So it's going to be a tight year. And um, your question was framed the other way, which is what would your advice be to business, which is, you know, do what you've always done. Start with the consumer and work back from that. Do the right thing for them. The job of retailers is to fight for the customers who they serve. That's the side of the table that retailers should sit on. Sometimes they forget that. Sometimes they sit on the wrong side of the table. They think it's their job to fight for the supply chain, if you like. It's not. You know, retailers exist to be intermediaries. Sainsbury's was founded in 1869. And over the door of the first Sainsbury's store, it said quality perfect, prices lower. Why did that matter? Because people were poor and their food was killing them, literally, in 1869. And when I left Sainsbury's, um, uh, it, it, it said, um, uh, live well for less, bottom of the adverts. And <laughs> to, my, to my mind, that's exactly the same as saying quality perfect, prices lower, but with a modern slant. So just don't forget when times are tough, the things that have made you successful. Double down on them because your job is to do a great job for customers. So that would be my advice. Justin King, it has been an enormous pleasure. Thank you so much. It's really, really, really loved every minute of it. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure to catch up with you both. Indeed. It's been very, very informative. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thank you.